Revelation is not sealed. Who's heard that about your, our faith? Raise your hand. Oh good, there's a few of you. Who knows what it means? Ah, oh, not so many of you. Few of you. Well, for those who don't, it means in contrast to many religions that we don't cling to one set established doctrine or belief. Instead, we allow our faith to continuously evolve, to never be set in stone. Indeed, one of our beloved members, David Barker, gave it a new spin in a chalice circle earlier this week. Now, as you know, our theme this month is becoming. And David said, perhaps becoming is not sealed in our faith. And I think he's right. Because as I pondered this idea, I realized that what perhaps most distinguishes our Unitarian Universalist faith is centuries of becoming. Becoming theologically, becoming institutionally, becoming in justice and compassion, becoming in who we are. We're not a finished, sealed religion. Our creeds weren't developed thousands of years ago and adhered to ever since. In fact, we don't even have creeds. We're constantly evolving with the needs and revelations of the times. Now, many established religions criticize us for this. They don't get what we're about since we're ever evolving. But I'd like to venture that our continued evolution is what actually keeps us relevant and vibrant. We're one of the few religions growing at this time. We're not married to the past. We're constantly listening and allowing ourselves to be shaken up and transformed to reflect the times. We want to address the needs of our day and evolve. So today, we're going to look at some of those important moments of becoming, focusing particularly on the time that we moved from being two distinct religious traditions to merging into one. So not only do we celebrate Chalice's 60th anniversary of founding in December this year, but we also commemorate the coming together of Unitarianism and Universalism about six months before that, in the spring of 1961. Now, my friends, I have to confess something. When planning this worship, I somehow got wrong information that our consolidation took place on April 12th, which is why we're talking about this today, because that's tomorrow. But it turns out that our merger date was actually May 12th, 1961. So we are a month early in celebrating this consolidation. But this likely makes us the first congregation in the country to honor this milestone. And in many ways, I think it's perfect because I think April's theme of becoming describes our faith so well, this, this unusual religion. So I hope you'll forgive my mistake and join me with full hearts in celebrating this Unitarian Universalist milestone of becoming. For over 100 years, the Unitarian and Universalist churches have been theologically allied liberal American faiths. Throughout, they engaged in a courtship dance of sorts, or at very least were flirting with one another. Now, both traditions arrived on American soil in the mid-1700s. Here's a picture of George de Medeville, 
who came from France in 1741. He began preaching the heretical idea of universal salvation, heretical because the Puritans liked controlling the populace with the threat of eternal damnation. But in universalism, God loved all. God didn't condemn anyone to hell. Six years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, John Murray arrived from Ireland. He was escaping debtor's prison and the death of his wife and child. An itinerant Methodist preacher, he began spreading this hopeful message of a loving God who forgave all sins along the Eastern seaboard. Meanwhile, Joseph Priestley, who also emigrated to the US, a Unitarian minister and the discoverer of oxygen, he was fleeing persecution and mob violence in England for his heretical beliefs. Invited by Benjamin Franklin, he arrived in 1791 and started Unitarian churches in Philadelphia. Now, calling someone a Unitarian at that time was considered a slanderous dig. Unitarianism, the idea that God was one and not a holy trinity, had been denounced as heresy for the last 1800 years. Being heretics and boundary pushers, questioning the status quo, I think are certain indications of becoming. Now, Unitarianism, of course, had first emerged in the 1500s in King Sigismund's Transylvania. Our only Unitarian king, Sigismund welcomed people to practice the faith of their choosing in his kingdom. His court minister, Francis David, is credited with saying, we need not think alike to love alike. And this continues to be a core tenet of our faith today. Sadly, this broad-minded monarch only reigned a few years and he was soon replaced by his nephew who returned the country to its Catholic origins. The roots of collaboration between Unitarianism and Universalism, however, began in the US in the early 1800s. Hosea Ballou, whom you see there, one of Universalism's founding ministers, rejected the doctrine of the Trinity in his 1805 Treatise on the Atonement. William Ellery Channing, 14 years later, made this the official Unitarian position in his sermon of 1819, Unitarian Christianity. So both religions were theologically Unitarian at their core. However, Unitarianism emphasized the importance of good works for salvation, whereas Universalism embraced the sinner with their core doctrine of universal salvation. Ballou famously encapsulated the core theology of Universalism, saying, if we agree in love, no disagreement can do us any harm. If we do not agree in love, no other agreement can do us any good. And they didn't agree on everything. What most divided these two liberal religions were issues of class and education. Ballou and Channing lived actually within easy walking distance of one another in Boston, but their paths never crossed because Unitarianism was ensconced in the Harvard intellectual elites of Boston while universalism, in contrast, was considered a faith of less educated, rural working class folk. The Universalist Church of America formed in 1803, and the American Unitarian Association formed in 1825. Both were committed to freedom of belief and conscience, as well as working for justice, education, and human rights. 
Soon the transcendentalists, many of whom were Unitarian ministers like Ralph Waldo Emerson, began pushing the newly formed American Unitarian Association to evolve. There's Ralph. They encouraged direct, personal, spiritual experience. Miracles, the Bible, and the divinity of Jesus were questioned. The transcendentalists were promptly excommunicated from the more conservative Unitarians for some decades. But over time, Unitarians opened their minds and became more about deeds than creeds, and they explored a post-Christian theology. Thomas Starr King was one of the first ministers to hold fellowship in both faith traditions. The son of a Universalist minister, he became pastor of the first Unitarian Church of San Francisco. In fact, the UU seminary that I attended in Berkeley, Star King, was named after him, as were many schools, buildings, and parks in our beloved California. He was credited by Abraham Lincoln for keeping California in the Union during the Civil War. Revered as an orator, minister, abolitionist, and proponent for social justice, his statue actually used to stand in the U.S. Capitol representing California. In the early 2000s, I'm afraid to say it was replaced by a statue of President Ronald Reagan. Star King had a wonderful way with words, though. He distinguished the denominations in this way. Universalists believed God was too good to send them to hell. And the Unitarians believed they were too good to be sent to hell. And that actually sums it up pretty well. By the end of the 1800s, Unitarianism emphasized ethics and morality over piety and began exploring humanism. Universalists, meanwhile, broadened their understanding of spirituality to embrace all world religions as valid paths to God. Both faiths were at the forefront of many justice movements, including abolition, women's suffrage, and education for all. But we've seen a lot of white men in these pictures, haven't we? Typical for the time, but nevertheless, not as progressive as we might hope. So I wanna share a little bit of our lesser known history. During the second half of the 1800s, they did ordain the first women ministers in Olympia Brown. There is Olympia, one of my heroines, and Antoinette Brown Blackwell. We also saw, saw a growing influence by some African-American leaders and orators, especially in Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, a renowned orator and women's rights activist. And Fanny Barrier Williams, who became a speaker at the first Parliament of World Religions in Chicago in 1893, which was actually hosted by Unitarians. And the first Black Unitarian minister, Ethelred Brown, who was ordained in 1912. But he returned to his native Jamaica to start a Unitarian church down there. In 1927, there was talk of merging Congregationalist churches with Universalists and Unitarians. And in a sense, this would mean returning them all to their roots as both religions had emerged from the Congregationalist faith. But Universalists felt the merger would be better suited just to Unitarians and Universalists. So in 1931, they formed a commission to explore the idea, but they soon realized it wasn't the right time for a merger. 
And as Sam mentioned, 1935 saw the first combining of youth groups, but it wasn't until October 1953, a decade after World War II, that the Council of Liberal Churches was formed to begin the process of consolidation. They tried having joint education, publications, and public relations. In 1956, a joint merger commission was formed with the hope of combining these two traditions by the turn of the decade. October 59 marked the first joint general assembly in New York to explore and finalize plans and hopefully get it happening by the end of the decade. But being true Unitarian Universalists, we continued discussions with many amendments. I think there were 35 amendments to the merger agreement. Both denominations feared a loss of identity. So they took time making sure this merger was the right thing. As Warren Ross shares in his book, The Premise and the Promise, a widely held view among Unitarians was that Universalists were theologically too conservative, too emotional, and essentially not like us. And many Universalists understandably feared that the more numerous and better organized Unitarians would swallow them up. Submerged, not merged, was a popular phrase, and that as individuals, they would be patronized. But finally, ever willing to become something new, the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church of America officially consolidated. They became one faith on May 12th, 1961. At this meeting, they ratified the constitution and bylaws of our new religion, and I'm never going to forget that date. Combined, they had around 152,000 members and slightly over 1,000 congregations. In 2019, we only had about 3,000 more members than in 1961, and a similar number of congregations. We've never been a particularly large denomination, so good for you all for finding us. However, I believe that we have the promise of widening our circle. We have the promise of changing the face of religion and social justice agendas, which I hope may prove appealing to seekers over time. As Reverend Marilyn Sewell said in her essay for our 50th anniversary on why Unitarians and Universalists belong together, we are influential far beyond our numbers because we are found at the edge of change, wherever change is needed. We are informed and we are passionate, heartfelt people. Now, since our consolidation, we've evolved significantly as a faith, if not in numbers. Now, in some ways, it was an unlikely union, but in other ways, it's the perfect marriage of head and heart. Unitarians more focused on intellect and education represent the head, and universalists more concerned with love and spirituality are the heart. And we've been figuring out that balance continuously over the last 60 years. At first, Unitarians were dominant in finances, institution, and organization. Indeed, because of their dominance, we've often simply been called Unitarians. Max Coots, originally a Universalist minister, expressed this fear in a rather humorous way. He said, in our time, Universalism, like a spinster lady in late life, took a husband 
And although they agreed to hyphenate their married name, by now the offspring of that union often simply call themselves by the husband's name. And in time, they may not recognize her name at all. So I invite you to help us keep both names alive. I also think the universalist part of our heritage is growing in influence. It's evolving in empowerment and strength of voice in this marriage. We're recognizing that love and spiritual evolution are vital. We want to stay relevant. Our trajectory in becoming more anti-racist, anti-oppressive and multicultural is all about being more loving and open-hearted. So as we've matured over these last 60 years, we've learned to value both head and heart. And I love that about this congregation. Now, as in any marriage, we've gone through many ups and downs as a consolidated faith over the decades. In the late 1960s, many UUs marched in the civil rights movements. However, the Black empowerment controversy threatened to break us apart in the late 60s. It showed us an unevolved response in our evolving faith. But we weathered this painful event as an association, and the UUA is now trying to make amends by actively supporting Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism with a $5.3 million commitment. And they've also made an intentional pledge to dismantle historical white supremacy structures in our faith. As you know, this is ongoing spiritual work throughout our denomination and our country and our world. Every year we're learning and growing our understanding of racism and its inherent toxicity in our society. As individuals, congregations, and an association, we're determined to become more inclusive, more liberated, more aware, and more loving. We're also one of the first faiths to welcome and ordain LGBTQ plus members and clergy and advocate for marriage equality. Together over the years, we created, adopted and revised our current seven UU principles, some of which you see behind me here. We're now considering adding an eighth principle about multiculturalism, and you'll no doubt hear more about that soon. Meanwhile, a UUA commission is exploring completely revising our seven principles to reflect current language and values. We are ever becoming. Over the last 10 years, the heart, without love at our core, we have little life to pump through our veins as a religion. Reason and science are still of great importance to us, but they're now a given, no longer a feature of our faith. Matters of the heart and spirit are increasingly becoming the additional lifeblood of our faith. We've seen the flourishing of the side with love movement, and you'll see this was the, the former movement standing on the side of love, but we changed it to side with love to be more inclusive. And this began as a movement to support marriage equality. And it now represents the many ways that we can side with love, whether it's to support immigrants' rights or advocate for racial or gender justice, whether we're marching for LGBTQ empowerment or climate justice. Our yellow t-shirts and stoles announcing that we side with love cannot be missed. 
We've seen our services become more musical, embodied and heartfelt. We're being called constantly to become more inclusive, more aware of our language and attitudes and more generous in our thinking. We are becoming. Though we need not think alike to love alike. Let me say that again. We need not think alike to love alike. The one thing we might agree on is that we're ever becoming in the practice of love. Love as experienced through growing inclusivity, kindness, and sensitivity to all beings. Love as enacted through our social justice work, advocating for racial justice, protecting our planet, and addressing our vast social and economic inequities. Just this week, those of us in the Witnessing Whiteness program were learning life skills that we can take into conversations with to those with whom we differ. We're practicing love. And if we continue to allow ourselves to be guided by love, then our path is clear. We'll work to be more loving in our relations with one another. We'll live into our principles and covenants, and we'll reach out to serve those beyond our walls and help heal our ailing society. Personally, I've never been surrounded by a group of more loving, caring people. If you want to continue to grow spiritually and become more loving, I invite you as Unitarian Universalists to ask yourself the following questions. How can I become more loving in this circumstance? And we're putting them in the chat so you'll have them. What is the more loving choice in this moment? Or you know how Christians say, what would Jesus do? Well, we can say, what would love do? What would love do? Personally, I know that I'll never arrive at being ultimately loving, strive as I might. It's a process of becoming. There's always more to learn, more to practice, more to dismantle, more to open up to. This community, this faith gives us the opportunity to practice love, to stretch ourselves, to love our enemy, to love the least among us and to continue each day to love a little more, even when it's hard. One of my interfaith colleagues, a Catholic deacon recently said to me, yeah, you Unitarians, he only used Unitarians, you Unitarians are the real deal. You really live how Jesus wanted us to live. My beloveds, may we allow love to guide us every day and every moment. When we allow love to guide us, then our faith and we ourselves become the promise and the hope we can be in this world. May it be so.